Hello everyone, Sam Willis here. Now, before we begin, I wanted to make a little announcement. I'm delighted to tell you all that I've teamed up with the excellent Bike Odyssey, a company with history and travel deep in its heart. They offer exceptional biking adventures. Bike Odyssey was set up by the historian, TV presenter and friend of mine, Sam Wood, who made the BBC documentary on Hannibal's Trail and he subsequently dedicated his life to cycling in the footsteps of great historical figures. This autumn, I'll be joining their Venetian tour travelling in the footsteps of Marco Polo. Come along and see for yourself why the Adriatic Sea is the most scenic coastline in the world. Along the way, I'll be sharing stories from my life of travel, adventure and research, as well as exploring the history all around us. It'll be a chance not just to immerse yourself in some of the world's most fascinating history, but to change the way that you think about the past. Now, if you want to find out more, just head over to bikeodyssey.cc. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that simply everything, everything, has a history like rope, stones and eggs. Or, Sam, hay, spray and today. There's a history about the everyday. Or, it's a great idea. juice, moose, and here I'm thinking about the dessert as well as the antlered beast, uh, <laughs> and, or, and spruce. Mooses. And again, there are, there's a double meaning there. It could be the tree or it could be the history of spring cleaning to spring things up. But this aside, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how these histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew, and there's a theme here, that the history of Gates, in fact, all about memory, commemoration, Nazi glory, concentration camps, and celebrations. Mm -hmm. Or that the history of pockets, the history of pockets, is about D-Day, paratroopers, land girls, rationing, and a patriarchal fear of women in men's clothing. Oh, I can't wait to hear about all of that. Excellent. Um, the man sitting opposite me is the D-Day bell of history. It's Professor James Davar. Hello, Sam. And the man sitting opposite me is the Winston Churchill of <laughs> wartime stories and wireless <laughs> speeches. It is the wonderful historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Has anyone worked out what we're going to be talking about today? That's your first game. And the answer, of course, is World War II. Um, we have been busy, haven't we? Before we start about talking about the World War Two, can we talk about the history of today? Because you just mentioned that, and I think it's a really good idea. My history of today is about annoyance, frustration. <laughs> Your actual day today. <laughs> My actual day today. <laughs> Idiocy. Um, and yeah, um, yeah. We should put that on our list to do the history. The history of of today. Yes. This day in history. Mm. Yes, I have nothing profound to say that because to that because you, you completely threw that as a yeah yeah no it's, it's a, a sprint, it is thought of well the, the question uh, is when do things become history oh that's God, it. do you see what I mean it's all about thirty year rule or something when they really come become history in this yeah. perspective I think history starts well, history ends in about the. Um, End of the 17th century, <laughs> I think. Because <laughs> you write about the Jews. Me. No, no, no. We I are going to come back to this because I love the idea of the history of today. Um, because everything I did this morning was history. The stuff I've just done now is history. The stuff I've just spoken about was history. It's happened in the past. Yes. And how would we get that back? 
Um, the study of history, I, though, the professional study of history is slightly more than something that merely happened five seconds ago. <laughs> It is. It is. I think. But you can do a really exciting um, exercise by getting people to think about what's just happened. Yes. And that's still history. Yes. Uh, and, how, and, and how a hundred years later people recover that. Exactly. So if you can recover uh, my annoyance, if you can dredge up some emails, although I don't commit them to emails, <laughs> I very patiently um, type an email out, delete it. Well, my history of today go. was uh, fundamentally about going through some of the copy edits for World War II, which I did this morning, and oh, yes. you've done it as well, which is why yes. we're talking about World War II. It is. So, um, James and I wrote our big book, Histories of the Unexpected. Since then, we have written a series of four books. We have written Histories of the Unexpected, The Tudors, Histories of the Unexpected, The Romans, Histories of the Unexpected, The Vikings, and you've guessed it, we've written Histories of the Unexpected, World War II. And we're going to talk about that. This was one of my... One of the books that I enjoyed writing the most, I think. I've actually enjoyed writing all of these because yeah. it's taken me back to interests that I've had uh, throughout my life. And I have always been fascinated in World War Two. In fact, World War Two and the study of World War Two when I was 10 or 11 years old was the thing that got me hooked on history. That's interesting. Really got me so hooked on history. My interest in history wasn't so specific. I was just interested in old things. I know in it sounds things. vague, but, um, but um, in like, almost like an antiquarian thing. I was just yep. old stuff, like old bits of pots, castles, walls, coins, early things. Archaeological things. Archaeological stuff, which kind of got me well, into what, it. What got me into this was, it was I was taught really well about World War II at school. Mm -hmm. And there's a brilliant TV programme called How We Used to Live. It was like a sort of um, historical reenactment show, but for kids. And so you went back in time to the Second World War and followed the exploits of, you know, a proper family that lived through it. But also what really brought it to life was my grandfather, who left Oxford University when he before he finished his degree and went went to fight and signed up, um, was a was an officer. And just his stories of being at war, which partly were about uh, clean feet and beards. Ah. So an interest in the unexpected happened because as an officer, he had to check uh, his soldiers' feet every day yeah. you know, so that they were, they were clean and they didn't get trench foot. And also he told me this, this one story about a, a soldier who, who had died and was by the left, the body was left by the, by the latrine. And over the, over the next week, he grew a luxurious... Um, a luxuriant ginger beard. The I'm corpse sure how, grew a beard. How, the corpse grew a beard. I'm not sure whether it was uh, luxuriant, yeah. uh, but certainly in my imagination, Car carried on growing. It carried on growing. Yeah. So that kind of really brought it home. And he used to. I mean, this is, this gets us on to talking about the kind of evidence that survives for this. But he recorded for me several tapes of his anecdotes from the war. And I think, uh, how did I treat them? I think I recorded Top of the Pops uh, over them oh, on a cassette. Wow. Yes. And, and you turned your life into being a historian. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then felt so guilty when my father said, what happened to those tapes? Oh, my God. And I got him to record them all over again. Have you got them now? No. I know. I know. And they Guard the past. Wow. I probably do, but they've probably got wham or... or, yeah. or um, something recorded over them. I like the fact that he was, you know, the the, the anecdotey side of things really interesting, isn't it? It is. It and is. What survives in people's minds uh, yes. on a day to day basis. So you're going to tell your story about this, that, and the other. That's your entire experience of being in the war. So he's been in the war. He's he's, um, you know, spent all this time probably doing some um, pretty fri frightening things. I don't know, um, but 
selected these kind of quirky anecdotes. It's, it's fascinating that the way that your brain f sifts through yeah. the things that you remember and you don't. And so often historians, they have to recreate the stuff that people don't talk about. So if you if you often you know, read diaries or something from soldiers or sailors or airmen or whatever it might be, people on the home front during the war, they will often focus on these kind of quirky things, but they won't necessarily tell you what they're wearing or they won't necessarily tell you um, what they had for lunch or what they're thinking. Um, and that is what so much of history is about now, isn't it? It's being able to recreate yep. these, the, the world that's all around you rather than the, the specifics that appear in, in yep. the diaries. And, and emotions, feeling, trauma, yeah. atrocity, these are all things that are very difficult for people to talk about. Well, let's, let's start talking about World War Two. What, well, what, yeah. what struck you most about World War Two, just as a sort of general period to sort of dive into? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we, what we needed to do was to... Uh, identify the kind of the key themes I and mean, it wasn't what we were then trying to avoid it was just subject areas we were going to get at from from a, yeah. diff a different perspective on the one hand you've got the sheer scale of human involvement in the war so between 39 and 45 100 million people become directly involved in the war one way or another which i thought was really interesting so it's not just about people fighting it's about everything that's going on in um back home in the home front it's not even about people who are part of countries who are fighting even though there were something like 60 or so countries who were involved in the war. There were other countries that remained neutral, but they were all affected by the war. The war had this sort of phenomenal effect on, on pretty much everyone. And that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. was extraordinary. We wanted, to, we wanted to get that kind of scale across. I think, it was, I think it's this sort of total war, this total war, that basically it's not only the sort of the military side of things that um, and the, the, the fighting um, a, a really long, protracted, exhausting war, but it's the way that the economies of every single country, the ideas, the power, the politics was all geared to the war effort. And so people's lives were transformed in a fundamental way yeah. by the fact that they were in, in war. And war, in this sense, is also a catalyst for new developments, new technological developments. Um, quite quite extraordinary, I think. It, uh, and the scope of war, I think, is is what is what also struck me about this. And the way that it gave birth to other wars, I found this absolutely fascinating. So you have all, a, a whole series of new wars which were born one way or another yes. from the Second yes. World War itself. So you've yeah, got yeah. war in Korea in 1945, Vietnam in 1945, Indonesia in 1945, Iran in 1945, the Philippines in 46, Greece in 46, Romania and India and Palestine in 47, Czechoslovakia in 48, and Burma in 1948 and they've all kind of grown and been spawned by what happened in in, in between 39 and 45 yep yep i think the other thing is is the variety of perspectives on the war so a lot of people are interested in the military side of things and i have in fact examined uh, phds where uh, thickness of tank armor is a very important uh, component mm. um so you can look at it from that sort of perspective but also then you can think about it on on the home front you can think about it for conscientious objectors you can think about it the sort of muddy fingered gardeners yep. who are sort of digging for victory yep. uh you can think about it from the um the perspective of children of women um you know political prisoners it's like an exercise um, in history itself isn't it so especially the yep. young and the old is interesting so not everyone is the same age who's experiencing yep. the second world yep. war therefore they're experiencing differently nationalities um different genders uh, different um sexualities whatever it might be yep. um and the evidence as well i love this so you talked about your dad yep. sorry grandpa who'd left yep. you those tapes yeah um 
I think this is a key thing because it makes I think it makes people realise that I think a lot of people out there saying I'm not a historian I'm not really interested in history but they're curators of archives in yes. their own way because yeah, yeah. upstairs in the attic you've got or in a back drawer somewhere you might have um, a postcard sent home maybe from a Japanese prisoner of war camp or you might just have letters from your children um, or, or, or from children within the family who had been evacuated. You might, you will, it's yeah. likely there are so many millions of people who have got records of the Second World War at home in drawers up in the attic in yeah. photo albums. And if you've got one, it makes you a curator of a little archive. So give yourself a pat on the back and get in touch with us and tell us that, yes, you are a curator of a little World War archive and this is what you've got because we want to know. Yeah. We have a we have a little uh, collection of postcards actually that were sent from my grandfather <clears throat> to my father, mm. all written in pencil. Yeah, uh, and they're full of secret codes. Oh. I mean, not codes in in sense of symbols, but certain sort of phrases that would make sense to my father and my grandmother. Yeah. Um, Somewhere over there, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, I've got the most extraordinary photograph of uh, my grandfather, so my mum's dad. Yeah. And he's standing on a box in front of about. 5,000 Japanese prisoners. And it's shortly after, after the Battle of Kohima, uh, which if you don't know anything about the Battle of Kohima, Google it. It's one of the most extraordinary battles fought in the war between the British and the Japanese um, in Burma. Um, he won military cross and he was promoted and he was put in charge of a Japanese prisoner of war camp. So there's a, uh, there's a photograph of my grandfather who's 19 in charge of thousands of people. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. So that's that's my little archive. However, on top of that, I have got a uh, photocopy of the diary he kept. Um, the original is now the Imperial mm. War Museum. Um, actually, do get in touch with us if you've got really important stuff, because we can offer you advice about what to do with it. It's, it's quite important. So Grandpa's diary has actually gone to the Imperial War Museum because I was worried I'd, there'd be a fire and it'd be lost. So I've got a copy of it, but they've got the original. Um, and we've got more photographs. We've got some clothing. Uh, a variety of stuff, actually. And, and, and we'd, I wouldn't even count us as obsessive historical hoarders. These are just the things that have been passed down and that we've got. Yeah. And one of the things that we did, we tried to do with this series, is that we try and do something slightly unexpected. So you can write a very traditional approach to World War II, yeah. which would look at the outbreak, look at the termination of war, um, follow the rise of the Nazi Party, um, the Holocaust you know, different powers, different battles, blah, 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 blah. All of that is imminent, eminently interesting, but we wanted to do something slightly different because you can find that anywhere. And what we wanted to do was to look at a series of topics that introduced us into different aspects of the war. So, for he, example... Here we go. This is what we did. Blood. King Arthur. Cancer. Carrots. Mozart. Darkness. Cars. Pockets. Furniture. Mothers. Puppets. Cows. Handkerchiefs. One of my favourites. Paperbacks. Gates. Zen Buddhism. Insects. Ooh, that's a really good one. <laughs> Deafness. That was my favourite. Suicide. And rubble. Which was both of ours favourite. I think yes. we both loved that one. So yes. um, there's a whole unexpected cornucopia of subjects that allow us to pick apart the Second World War in um, which is a unique way. I mean yeah. there's there's no there's nothing wrong with saying that. No one has ever written a book like this. <laughs> no, and I think what I enjoyed about it was the the creativity sure. with it. With great respect to the subject, we did a lot of research for it. But it's also it's also um 
it's also very... Sorry, I can't search by topic. But I can search by title. Actors order. Siri, <laughs> my phone has been... Siri, shut <laughs> up. Siri's microphone uh, perked up <laughs> at the thought of World War Two. One of the chapters that I loved writing was the chapter on blood. Yeah. And blood was all about recruitment. And the idea with each of these chapters, the way that we thought about it is that we need... If you think about it structurally, what we wanted was to take a topic and go off in unexpected ways and have one sort of overall theme and then a number of different ways of looking at it. So for me, blood was about three very different things. First of all, it was about, well, the whole thing was about recruitment. Recruitment then became about how parliament, parliamentarians in particular, used the rhetoric of blood in order to recruit people to their cause. Yep. So you see that in the blood, sweat and toil and tears speech of Winston Churchill. Yep. And there's a really interesting use of, of this um, spilling the blood of our innocent children mm-hmm. um, that, you know, around the sort of time of appeasement, that's seen as, a, as, a, as something that you want to adhere to. And then Churchill comes in with his rhetoric about the importance of spilling blood in or the willingness to spill blood for the, the yeah. cause of the country. So that was then juxtaposed against Nazi pro- propaganda, which was trying to recruit people to the Nazi campaign, which looked at the way in which... Jews in particular were bloodthirsty. Yeah. And there's, there are stereotypes of the sort of blood-sucking uh, Jew uh, in Nazi propaganda back in the early, early 30s. And what happens is they fasten on, in particular, kosher slaughter. So this idea in the Jewish religion is that you basically have to empty all the blood out of an animal when it is butchered so that the meat is cleansed and that you can um, you can eat it safely. And it's a very important religious. um One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a it's a T-shirt until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. How would you like to look 5 years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking 5 years younger at 6 months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Religious fact of, of their diet. And what the Nazis do is they pinpoint that as something that is bloodthirsty and causing needless suffering to these animals. And they use that as part of their propaganda. To recruit people to their cause. To recruit yeah, people exactly. to their you cause. Know, the same principle yeah. is running yeah, through yeah. it, isn't it? Yeah. And then the next, the next example is the Red Cross. And it's recruiting people to give blood. Yeah. And so it's all about the setting up of the Red Cross in the US, the millions of pints of blood that are turned into plasma and then transported across the oceans in order to give blood transfusions to troops around the world. I've got a quote here from the, the Welsh MP David Grenfell, who um, he spoke in the House of Commons shortly after Churchill's uh, blood, sweat and tears speech. Uh, and it's worth reading out. It's just fantastic. And it just it, it does explain how or demonstrate how they were using this idea of the imagery of blood in recruitment. I can sympathise with those gallant people who are willing in the face of overwhelming odds to stand as men have stood before and shed their blood that the people may be free when they themselves are dead and gone. The willingness to make that sacrifice has been denied to them. They are asked not to indulge in this proud act of self-immolation but refrain from exercising this privilege of men for the sake of the peace of Europe. And they are rewarded with a threat of extermination with the certainty almost of the complete dissolution of their collective life. Good. It's really good, isn't it? It's very powerful, powerful, very powerful. stuff. So that's blood, blood, recruitment. Yeah. What, what are your favourite examples? Oh, I've got a variety of things here. Some of them really surprised me. Uh, King Arthur really surprised mm. me. So what happens is basically during the Battle of Britain, so King Arthur just suddenly appears. Um, he is used by politicians, he's used by artists and cartoonists, by musicians, a whole kind of cultural embracing of the myth of King Arthur, who is a, a, a mythical king. Part of that myth is supposed to be reborn in time of want. And what they all identify in Britain at that time is that they were, they were part of a time of want. And therefore, up, up pops King Arthur. Here's a, here's a, a quote from Churchill. Now, this is actually from an early chapter in his book, The History of the English-Speaking Peoples, written just before the outbreak of war. He started it just before the outbreak of war. And wherever men are fighting against barbarism, tyranny and massacre for freedom, law and honour, let them remember that the fame of their deeds, even though they themselves be exterminated, may perhaps be celebrated as long as the world rolls round. Let us then declare that King Arthur and his noble knights, sustained by valour, physical strength and good horses and armour, slaughtered innumerable hosts of foul barbarians and set decent folk an example for all time. And so what he's doing is he's equating Britain's uh, situation during the Battle of Britain as, as this moment of need when King Arthur's going to be reborn. And um, I just loved all the different examples that I came across of King Arthur appearing, whether it was in visual form or whether it was in uh, music or whether it was in politics. Yeah. yeah. So that, so that, so he's film take, as well. He's taking that idea of King Arthur that he writes about in his history of uh, the English-speaking peoples and using it in a speech to Parliament. That, yep. Yep. 
in yep. 4th of June 1940. Yeah, and, um, and so it's not... Well, there's another example here, which I'll just read out, which is, which is also utterly fantastic. So it's by um, Lord Dunsany, who's a, a, a poet and a playwright, and he's an old old man at the time, and he joins the LDV, which is the kind of the forerunner to the Home Guard, and he, wrote, he writes a lovely little poem about... Um, about his, his his gun, the, the weapon that, that he, he, he had before. Dull instruments were used to slay, compared with those of old, and not a weapon of today is lovely to behold. But since it was King Arthur's aim to keep his Britain free, and feeling pretty much the same, feelings pretty much the same inspire the LDV. Although of armour we have none, nor shield, nor sword, nor spur, I've given my old sporting gun the name Excalibur. <laughs> Excellent. How good is that? Very good. So, um, Very good. I, I, you know, by identifying all these different ways that Arthur popped up, you can just get a sense of of how how significant this kind of mythical mythical character suddenly became, particularly during the Battle of Britain. So King Arthur is all about the Battle of Britain. Yeah. For me, the history of cows... World War II is all about the history of cows, which is all about technological innovation. And this starts with Nazi super cows, which came to attention in this country, particularly in Devon, uh, because we had some very aggressive cattle uh, roaming around the fields and chasing tourists and hikers, uh, people walking across fields very recently. But this comes back to a couple of brothers, Lutz and Heinz Heck, who in the 1920s in Weimar, Germany, they were sons of the director of Berlin Zoo, and they start a series of experiments to reverse engineer really aggressive cattle, cattle that are extinct. In particular, the Auroch, which is a large horned cattle mm -hmm. that was... Um, that was bred out of that was hunted out of existence, and the idea is that they become members of the Nazi Party, and through Nazi Party patronage and support, they perform a series of experiments, doing research in libraries, looking at old extinct types of beasts, and then taking really really aggressive beasts like Spanish bulls, and and basically taking the most aggressive elements of them, splicing them all together to form these new beasts. Now, when I thought about that, when I started reading about this, I thought, ah, what they're trying to do is trying to create beasts that have enormous chests and are full of meat. But in fact, it's not that at all. It's being able to recreate this almost sort of medieval idyll of a, of a, a sort of knightly... German, expansive Germany, where people, knights would go around hunting beasts, and it's tied to the idea of Lebensraum. So this idea of Germany having this proper living space, which is at the heart of Nazi ideology about the expanding um, empire. So that was one of the thing, one of the ways which I was looking at it, uh, cows in terms of technological change. Then there's stuff on milking and antibiotics. Yeah. So you go over to America around the same period, and because the war is going on, there are all these technological innovations to breed resistance into their beef stock in order to make them live longer, to be able to produce more, all sorts of technological innovations about feeding them in different sort of in different ways, and also to get more and more milk out of them. Yeah. And then that leads us to bully beef. Uh, and the yes. the Frey Bentos factory <laughs> and the production of canned beef that basically 
feeds the British and American army. But also... And that all comes from a factory in South America, which really doesn't have that much to do with the war. But actually, without that factory, the war couldn't have happened. It's completely amazing. It's still there. But it also also spawns, and unfortunately this had to be cut from the book, it also spawns a domestic canning industry. So people start getting interested in, you know, they've cured the problem of botulism (laughs) from canning. People start doing it properly. And so there are domestic... There's a domestic canning industry throughout uh, throughout the country. Now, it's a great example of how, how the book kind of helps us range widely all over the place and why it was so, so much fun to write. Um, I, he, he shivered there, uh, yeah. he was saying that. No, it, was, it, was, it was great. There's, um, you know, there's, there's a kind of a crucial moment where we, we read generally about the book we were going to write about and then decide what the subjects are going to be on. Yes. Um, and it's, I w- it's not always a walk around a cricket pitch to decide that, <laughs> is it? <laughs> um, and I wanted to do one on the blackout. I wanted to do one on darkness. We talked about doing the history of darkness before, didn't we? Mm. And uh, it struck me that we, we definitely could do something on, on the history of darkness. And then I, um, I found this quote written by a journalist, Mia Allen, in April 45. I stood on the footway of Hungerford Bridge across the Thames, watching the lights of London go out. The whole great town was lit up like a fairy land in a dazzle that reached into the sky. And then one by one, as a switch was pulled, each area went dark. The dazzle becoming a patchwork of lights being snuffed out here and there until a last one remained and it too went out. What was left us was more than just wartime blackout. It was a fearful portent of what war was to be. We had not thought that we would have to fight in darkness or that light would be our enemy. And uh, that exploded my mind about what we could do with darkness. And I ended up writing a chapter in in which darkness is actually all about crime. It's about people being suddenly afraid of the places they lived and the people they knew because they didn't have the light to to the light to guide them, the light to illuminate their lives. And actually it makes you realise how important uh, unnatural light was to feelings of safety and security in night times in the city. Mm. And you know it stops accidents as well when you're out in the out in the sticks, but it's particularly in the city and also in the, and certainly in the shelters as well. And yep. all sorts of extraordinary things happen in the blackouts and, and crime, um, you know, balloons. Yeah, I, th- I think one of one of the chapters I most liked was the chapter on deafness. And I think one of the things that we tried to do that we try and do in all our work is to give a is to give a multitude of perspectives. Those of you who follow the podcast regularly will know that there is a there is a really strong kind of streak of gender history that goes through everything. That will be because I'm a gender professor of gender history. Um, but we also try and see a sort of variety of perspectives. And one of the things that I found most touching was the descriptions that you found you came across of atomic bombs among the the deaf in in Japan. And I, I read that when I was reviewing it and it just a shiver went down my spine. Yeah. So I mean, deafness is all about lost stories. So basically yeah. historians are now realising or particularly maybe they realise, but particularly paying attention to the fact that deaf people experience the war in a different way to people who could hear. Yeah. To hearing. It's as simple as that. Uh, um, but finding the testimonies is challenging uh, and people are engaging it now. I mean, they're absolutely um, going for it and the stuff they're coming up with is is absolutely fantastic and it's giving an entirely new perspective and all sorts of wonderful um, 
well, not wonderful, I mean, important aspects of the war. Yeah. Um, one of which, uh, the, one of the most powerful ones, I think, is the the um, testimonies of deaf Japanese people who witnessed the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And yeah, no, that was that that was that was very moving. And um, certainly, having written the book, it's it's utterly transformed the way that I think about the war. Gosh, with silence after that, it's quite. It's really quite touching. I mean, it's the the description is of this this young girl who is who is completely without the ability to hear, Um, and on that fateful day, she um, her entire family are lost, and she has to go away and live in another part of Japan. Um, and because she is profoundly deaf, is bullied and beaten and treated miserably. And then she's found by researchers, and they take her back decades later to where she grew up. And she meets a somebody that she remembers from her childhood and hugs her, and having been mute for almost her entire life, speaks this woman's name. And then what this leads to is a a sort of an unfolding of precisely what happened to her working with therapists. Um, And, you know, a quite extraordinary story, which is in the book. It is in the book, and um, it's really affected both of us, I think, yes. writing this book. Uh, but but I, th- I think that's one of the reasons why world people are so interested in World War II, because it is, it is close to us. Yes. And um, there are not so many people alive today who, uh, you know, as there were five years ago, who actually experienced the war. But it filters down through, and I, um, I feel close to the war. My, both my grandparents are dead, or four of my grandparents are dead now, but I, I remember speaking to them. Yes. So yes. my memory of the war is very much alive. Yep. Uh, and, I, you know, if you, if you talk to people now, I would be amazed if they didn't know someone who had spoken to them about the war or to remembering what their parents' experience were about the war. So it's um, this, this sort of oral tradition of history is, is yep. very much alive in the world today. You've just got to know where to look for it, but it's yep. there. In fact, when we were writing this, I we have a, a neighbour who is in his 80s and remembers uh, uh, his boyhood in London during the war. And I went round and had a conversation with him about tables. Yeah. Of all things, and and he, you know, just the memories that he has of those, and it's again, it's, as you say, it's those everyday occurrences that we just forget and that you don't think of, those unthinking things that people remember. And there have been so many brilliant projects, like the BBC People's War Project, for example, which is this amazing project to uh, archive people, uh, the memories of a generation of people who are going to be no longer with us in yeah. you know a few decades yeah. such an important such an important piece of work and if any of you are interested in the second world war there is so much research to be done on all aspects of it yeah and loads of ways you can get involved yeah absolutely um, which is good so um thank you very very much indeed for listening um i hope we've given you a taster of what the book is is going to be like uh, but it's fabulous please go and read it um but if you like what you hear please leave us a review on itunes it really matters and um as James and I have said before, we are trying to do something uh, different here with history. We're trying to get you all to think about the past in a different way, and we can only really do that with your help. So please review the podcast because it does make a difference. Thank you. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow Histories of the Unexpected on its own Twitter feed at Unexpected Pod. And you can find out more about what we've got coming up, um, whether it's podcasts, whether it's books or live shows. Um, we, we're on tour. Come and see us. We 
We've done something like 40 shows now. It's really, yep. really good fun. We love meeting you all. You're all wonderful, and you've all got brilliant stories which you're sharing with us. Um, so please do come and see us if you haven't done so already. And come again if you've seen us before, because we're going we're to change the show and do some new stuff, aren't we? My, we are. But my favourite story so far was a gentleman coming up to us uh, saying that after we talked about scalping and somebody not being able to have a, his scalp reaffixed, he came up to us and said that, in fact, he had performed that very operation. And it was quite quite tricky, but certainly doable yeah. to reaffix <laughs> yeah. somebody's scalp nowadays. Yeah, wow. So come, come and see us with your, your stories. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.